Well, please be seated. Uh, let's pray together now. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. And as we come to these verses now, we ask for your help as we consider what you have to say to us this morning. We pray for your gracious help for me and your gracious work in all of our lives this morning as we listen to you speak to us, that you would shape us to be the church you've called us to be, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. So please do have that passage of scripture open in front of you that we read earlier on in our service. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and we're going to pick up this week at verse 8 through to the end of the chapter. And in our morning series, we're gradually working our way through this great letter that the Apostle Paul sent to his friend and his co-worker, Timothy. Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus, and Paul sent this letter to instruct him, to help him in how best to do that. And in the verses we come to this morning, Paul turns to this topic of how gender plays out in the life of the church. And it hardly needs saying, does it, that we live in a time and we live in a culture which is so confused when it comes to this topic of gender. Practically every day in the media or on social media, we come across these stories of gender identity or gender fluidity or gender reassignment and so on and so on. It is a culture obsessed with the topic of gender. And it will therefore be helpful for us this morning to consider what God's word has to say on the matter. And as we'll see, Paul has got one instruction for the men in the church and he has two instructions then for the women in the church and we'll work through them one by one so here's the the first one simply men are to pray men are to pray and you remember that Paul started this chapter with this very very strong emphasis on the prayer life of the local church. Back in verse 1, he said, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He's saying this is what the prayer life of the church should be like. This is of first importance in the life of the local church. Simply the church must pray. They must pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And again in verse 8, Paul picks up again on this theme of prayer. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. When he says in every place, he means in every place where there's a church. Wherever there's a church, there should be prayer. A prayerless church 
is a contradiction in terms in the mind of the Apostle Paul. And he calls particularly on the men to lead in prayer. Now from the the context of these verses and also chapter 3, I think it's clear he's speaking here about the men in leadership in the church. He's saying when the church gathers for worship, uh, those men who are involved in leading in that worship should make sure that prayer is a part of that worship. They're to lead the church in praying all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. But I think that there is also, of course, a wider application here than just simply men who are in leadership in the church. Of course, all men should be men of prayer. Real men pray. If you're a man, be a man of prayer. Devote yourself to personal, private prayer. Set aside that time each day to pray consistently, to pray faithfully. If God has blessed you with a family, lead that family in prayer. Come along on a Wednesday night. Join with us as a church family as we pray together there. Paul is saying real men pray. And of course this applies to women as well, doesn't it? This is not exclusively about men. Prayer is for women as well. Real women pray. If you're a woman, be a woman of prayer. And if you're a woman and you're at that stage in life when you're looking for someone who you might marry, look for a man who prays. Look for a man who will lead you in praying. And in what manner should the men pray? Well, that's what Paul turns to in the second half of verse 8, isn't it? He says they should do so, first of all, by lifting holy hands. Now this, I think, is clearly a cultural thing that he's talking about here. There are many occasions in the Bible when prayer is talked about without the lifting of holy hands. So Paul's not saying you must lift your hands when you pray, though of course you may do so. But the point is that in this cultural context into which Paul is writing, the lifting of hands in prayer was an expression of wholehearted reverence before God. That is the application for us, isn't it? That when we pray, whether that's on our own, whether that's with others, whether that's as a church family, uh, there should be wholehearted reverence to our prayers. So easy, isn't it, to become just very laid back, casual, even slovenly in prayer. And Paul is calling for wholehearted reverence before God whenever we pray. Notice these hands that he mentions. They're not just any hands. They are holy hands. And what Paul means by that is that the person praying must be living in right relationship with God. They must be living a holy life. That is, by God's grace, turning from sin. Trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. Pursuing godliness in the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that you can pray with wholehearted reverence before God 
if the rest of the time you're living an unholy lifestyle. Prayer must arise out of a life that is lived in right relationship with God. And not only that, but prayer must also arise out of a life lived in right relationship with others. And that is what Paul is getting at at the end of verse 8 when he says, without anger or quarreling. Don't think that you can pray with wholehearted reverence before God if in your life you're at loggerheads with other people and you're falling out with them and you're bearing grudges against them, you're refusing to forgive them, refusing to extend fellowship towards them. God doesn't listen to prayers like that if you're living like that. Jesus says, doesn't he, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation with, with others before offering to God what you have to offer to him in prayer. This is what the, the prayer life of a church should look like, Paul says to Timothy. Prayer for all kinds of people. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And that prayer done in wholehearted reverence before God, arising out of a life that is lived in right relationship with God and in right relationship with others as well. And then having dealt with that instruction to the men, Paul then turns to the instructions to the women. And the first is this, adorn yourselves with good works. Adorn yourselves with good works. And Paul is going to turn now to the very practical matter of what to wear for church. And when it comes to, to this issue, people tend to fall into, I think, two main groups, don't they? And you know how it goes. You've heard some people say, Something like this. You've heard people say, well, Jesus is the king of kings, remember. And if you were invited to appear before an earthly king, you would wear your very best, your smartest clothes for that. And so how much more should you wear your best, your smartest clothes for church when you're coming to meet the king of kings? And then, at the same time, you've also heard people say something like this. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so, it's what is on the inside, actually, that really matters. So you can really wear whatever you like, as long as your heart is right before God. Now, I think both of those viewpoints have got good elements to them. And yet, I hope you see as we look at Paul's teaching on this issue this morning, that ultimately, ultimately both of those approaches end up being unhelpful. And you see, Paul is addressing this particular situation that existed in the church in Ephesus. Now, of course, just as prayer applies to women as well as men, these matters apply to men as well as women. 
But there's a particular situation that Paul is addressing in the church in Ephesus, and that problem uh, concerns the women in that congregation. And the problem is that the church had become more like a fashion show. So Paul mentions braided hair, he mentions gold and pearls and costly attire. And it's not like these things are banned from the, the church, of course. The problem was in Ephesus that things had just become so over the top, so ostentatious in all these things. You can imagine, can't you, the competitiveness that this would bring about amongst the women in the church. Uh, There they were, pulling out all the stops Sunday by Sunday, wanting to be the best dressed at church that day. Wanting to have the the most fashion trends, the the designer brands, the, uh, the best clothes on show. You can also imagine them after the service saying to one another quietly, did you see what Mrs. So-and-so was wearing this morning? Or what she wasn't wearing? And of course, it, it would also mean that the women in the church who couldn't afford to keep up with all of those things would feel very awkward as they arrived at church. They would feel like they, they don't really fit in because they, they can't keep up with the style Uh, They can't afford to to dress like this. They just don't have those clothes nor the means to buy them. So that's the situation in Ephesus. And and Paul is going to give some very practical guidelines, therefore, on what to wear for church. And you see, that's why it is not altogether helpful if someone says, well, you can wear whatever you like to church because it's your heart that matters, not your clothes. Because you see here, Paul is showing us that the choices that you make regarding what you wear actually reflect what's going on in your heart to some degree or another. You can't just separate the two and say the heart matters but the clothes don't. The clothes often reflect the heart. And so guidelines are needed. And so firstly, he says respectable apparel. That is respectable to God and respectable to other people as well. And that begs a question then, doesn't it? Well, what is respectable clothing? And the fact is that that changes a great deal, doesn't it? It changes from culture to culture. It changes from generation to generation. And so you can't be too dogmatic on this point. You can't say it has to be this particular type of clothing that a person should wear for church because it varies so much. We need to be charitable, therefore, with one another as Christians, and especially so when it comes to people of a different culture or people of a different generation to ourselves. Paul says respectable clothing, but let each person be convinced in their own mind what that means to dress in that respectful way. And then he goes on and he gives further guidelines. He says modesty and self-control. And so this means don't wear things that are are going to draw attention to yourself. And that that can happen in a a number of ways, can't it? It can draw attention in an impressive way because these clothes are are just so smart. Uh, These are just so expensive clothes, so fashionable clothes. It it can be in a sexual way that we can draw attention to ourselves because the, the clothes are so revealing. Or it can be in any number of other ways. Clothing that draws attention to yourself is unhelpful, says Paul. Uh, Dress with modesty. 
And then he adds at the end of verse 9, not costly attire. And so please don't think that you ever need to go out and you need to spend money on getting an expensive outfit for coming to church. Not at all. Don't think that you need to dress on a Sunday as though you appear before an earthly king. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And his word says to us, not costly attire. It's very helpful, very practical guidelines, isn't it? For women and for men. What do you wear for church? Well, of course, you have freedom to choose. This is a matter of liberty. But God's word gives us these helpful guidelines to think what is appropriate for the context of corporate worship. And the guidelines, according to 1 Timothy 2, are respectable, modest, self-controlled, and not costly. And then Paul goes on in in verse 10, doesn't he? And he tells the women in Ephesus how they should seek to adorn themselves. He says they they need to stop this showy fashion parade that is taking place Sunday by Sunday. But they must adorn themselves in another way. And he says with what is proper for women who profess godliness. With good works. Now Peter says a very similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And Christian women in particular, this is how to make yourself more beautiful than even the the hottest fashion trends on the catwalks of Paris or New York or whatever or the the glossy magazines that you see. The most beautiful thing about a woman is godliness and the good works that then flow from that godliness. And when it comes to adorning yourself in that way, then by all means, pull all the stops out and by God's grace become as beautiful as you possibly can be. That's the first instruction Uh, towards the the women in particular there. But then the second one is this. Learn quietly with all submissiveness. And here's where we we get to the bit that particularly jars with our culture, doesn't it? It just sounds so outdated. sounds sexist. It sounds politically incorrect, doesn't it? Let's listen to those words again, verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what do we do with these verses? Well, to start with, I want to point out two things we shouldn't do with these verses. Uh, Firstly, we shouldn't simply dismiss them. And there are really two reasons why people try and dismiss these verses. The the first is by saying that it's just plain wrong. Now we believe that all of scripture is breathed out by God and therefore it's profitable for us, as Paul elsewhere says to Timothy. And that's of course true of these verses as well. And therefore however hard it may be for us to accept them, this is the word of God. And this is the word of the God who cannot be in error at any point and who cannot deceive So we we can't simply dismiss these words as being wrong. 
but nor can we dismiss them as being merely cultural. That's what a, a lot of people would do with these verses. They, might, they may say, well, yes, I'm not saying that this is not God's word. I acknowledge it is God's word. But in this particular section, Paul is dealing with a particular situation in that culture. And therefore, it doesn't apply to Christians today, living as we do in a very different culture, in a very different time. Now, for reasons we're going to get to later on, we cannot dismiss these words as being merely cultural. And the second thing that we shouldn't do with these verses is to misunderstand Paul as saying that submission implies inferiority. And that's what we often think, isn't it? We, we hear Paul talking about women submitting to men. And automatically we, we think, well, doesn't that imply, therefore, that women are inferior to men? And the answer is no. This submission that Paul speaks of here does not imply any kind of inferiority of women. And the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, rules that out right from the start. So we read in Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women, males and females, are both created in the image of God. Therefore, with equal dignity and equal value before God, women are not inferior to men in God's eyes. They are equal to men. So why then does Paul say what he does in verses 11 and 12? And helpfully, Paul explains why in verses 13 and 14. Firstly, he says, this order was established in creation. This order was established in creation. Now, I've already taken us to Genesis 1, which underlines the equality of men and women. Paul now takes us to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 underlines the differences between men and women. So he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And you see, there is this order established in creation. Adam, the man, created first. And as you know from those early chapters of Genesis, he's given this position of headship and leadership. And then later, Eve created second, created as Adam's helper, created to live under his leadership and submitting to him in that way as they work alongside one another, serving God together. And this order that was established in creation has abiding significance. And we can't just dismiss these verses here in 1 Timothy 2 as being merely cultural. Because you see, Paul doesn't root his argument in a particular cultural context. He does quite the opposite. He roots his argument in the order established at creation. And it is therefore of abiding significance, whatever culture and whatever time we may be living in. It's got significance for marriage. As Paul points out in um, Ephesians 5, it has significance as well as that for God's household, as he's pointing out here in 1 Timothy 2. And the significance is that the responsibility of, of leading the church and of teaching the church is a responsibility that men must step up to. Now, does that mean that there are no teaching roles at all 
for women in the church. Well, of course, it doesn't mean that. Uh, just read through the New Testament. You see that there are several examples of women teaching God's word. Um, Titus 2 is a good example of that. But also, um, in our Wednesday evening devotions at our prayer gatherings, we've been going through Acts, and we're, we've recently been in Acts 18, where Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, teach another man, a preacher no less, uh, they teach him the word of God. Priscilla, in fact, is mentioned first in that verse. It's unusual because um, normally we have Aquila and Priscilla, but in that verse, when it comes to them teaching Apollos, uh, it is Priscilla who is mentioned first in that verse, strangely enough. So there are clearly positions and, and roles for women teaching God's word in the life of the church. And as well as that, just look at our church here. Look at our church family now, I haven't counted up. I would guess, though, that we probably have more women in the church teaching God's word than we do men who do that. Think of the ministries in this church and how blessed we are to have women like that in our church family. We give thanks to God for you. And Paul here, though, is speaking specifically about the pulpit ministry of the church, if you like. When the, the church gathers for corporate worship and God's word is authoritatively proclaimed to the gathering of God's people. And that context, Paul says, is a male role because it reflects this order that is established in creation. And then in verse 14, he points out that this order was then distorted in the fall. This order was distorted in the fall. So we've been to Genesis 1. We've been to Genesis 2. Now Paul takes us to Genesis 3. And Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now Paul's not saying that women are more gullible or that women are more sinful than men. Of course, those things are not true. But he is saying that in the fall, the order that was established in creation that order of man leading the woman and the woman submitting to the man's leadership was distorted. And the serpent knew exactly what he was doing here. He saw the, the order that God had established in Genesis 2. And what the serpent did was to seek in every way he could to distort that order. So he goes to the woman first, speaks to her first, uh, puts her into a, a position of leadership, tempts her towards that. And then it, the order is distorted because then the woman, Eve, leads and Adam then submits to her leadership. And you see what is happening in the fall, don't you? The order that God established in Genesis 2 is distorted by Satan, the serpent, and Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And Paul is saying here, this order that was established in creation and was then distorted in the fall must therefore be rescued. It must be reaffirmed, both in the realm of marriage and in the realm of God's household, the church, as well. And of course, we need that today as well, don't we, in this world that is so confused about what gender is all about. And then Paul finishes with this very strange verse. In verse 15, he says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing 
if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what on earth does Paul mean by that phrase? There are different interpretations of it. Uh, But I think this may be a helpful way of reading that verse. Think about the context of what Paul has just been saying in the past couple of verses. In verse 13, he took us to the account of the creation in Genesis 2. In verse 14, he took us to the account of the fall in Genesis 3. And so he's drawing on that imagery of, of the early chapters of Genesis in these verses. And then in verse 15, we have this strange statement, don't we, about salvation coming through childbearing. So think of it in these terms. In the context of the Genesis account that Paul has been drawing on in these verses, is there anything there which speaks of salvation coming through childbearing? And of course it becomes clearer when you you think of it in those terms, doesn't it? Think of what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3 verse 15, the first time the gospel was ever preached. God was the preacher, the serpent was the audience. And the gospel preached in the Garden of Eden was this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you see, the gospel, according to Genesis 3, verse 15, is this, that a child would one day be born, the offspring of woman. And this person would go in time into battle against Satan and would defeat Satan in order to save his people though he himself would be wounded in the process. And you see, Paul is saying this, as you consider the biblical teaching on gender, and in particular what he's been talking about in these verses, about male headship in the church and female submission to that. Don't for a second think that this means that women are somehow the lesser gender in God's eyes, that they're somehow inferior to men. Paul is saying, if you want proof of that, just look to the incarnation as foretold in Genesis 3.15. How did the saviour Jesus come into the world? And it was through the fact that a, a young woman became pregnant and no man was involved at all. You see, from the human side of the the conception, it's all woman, isn't it, in the case of the the Savior? No man involved in the conception of the Savior. It's all woman. It's all Mary from the human side of things. And then that young girl did what no man has ever done and what no man can ever do. That is, she carried a baby in her womb. She went through the, the whole nine months of pregnancy, all the morning sickness, all of the aches and pains, all the the tiredness. And then eventually, of course, the the blood, sweat and tears of childbearing itself. All so that in the end, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
And don't for a second doubt how invaluable, how precious, therefore, womanhood is in the eyes of God. Through childbearing, the Savior came to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, they are so challenging. Uh, they are so countercultural. But we pray that you would help us to accept them as your word. And we pray for the men of this congregation. We pray that you would help us to be men of prayer, personally and in our families and in the life of the church. And help us all as a church family to pray with wholehearted reverence, which flows from lives lived in right relationship with you and right relationship with others. Help us all to consider how we conduct ourselves as we come together to, to worship you week by week. Help us to be wise in this, even in terms of what we wear. And may our adorning be that of godliness and good works. And we thank you for the order that you established at creation, that order of male and female. And we know that that is under attack in these days. But help us to be faithful to the biblical teaching on the matter. I thank you that you have made us male and female with deep equality between the two genders. And yet at the same time, these complementary differences and help us to express that maleness and femaleness in our lives and in our marriages and in our church. And most of all, Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son, born of woman and born to save us. And in his precious name, we pray these things. Amen.